Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Fiction. Science fiction. Horror. Fantasy. Crime. LGBT. Thriller. You Welcome back into the House of Mystery, and I'm the person responsible, Al Warren. Um, Co-hosting today is John Copenhaver. Hey, Al. How you doing? I'm doing good. See, I said it right. I think that's two, 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 two times in a row. Holy cow, people are going to be thrilled. Progress. Progress. Yeah, but, you know, as soon as I'm in a rush again, it'll be Copenhagen again. It's okay. I'm very forgiving. Danish cigars or whatever. <laughs> well, hot day here. Um, how is it back there? In the east, well, in Richmond, Virginia, it's actually kind of cool, which is very weird for this time of year. But um, it has uh, been a cold, rainy Memorial Day weekend. So, and now, you know, it's kind of, it'll probably heat up here soon, but. Hmm. Beginning of the end. So. Yes, I'm afraid so. Don't wait for it. So, <laughs> so you can't rent a car, I hear. Yes. So I had to cancel my vacation um, out west, which was, uh, my husband and I were really looking forward to um, touring around uh, the Grand Tetons. And we can't find a car to rent at a reasonable rate. It's like the cheapest is like $400 a day, which would kind of break the bank. Um, <laughs> so I'm kind of bummed out anyway. Well, I'm telling you, just 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 uh, buy a car and return it afterwards. <laughs> <laughs> Guess they won't like that. No, no, that's a I'm crime. <laughs> Probably it is a crime. Now, speaking of crime, we have a uh, mystery writer and uh, first time on the show. It's going to be a thrill. So, Barbara Wilson, thank you for being here. Thank you, Alan, for having me on your show. 
now, Barbara, where did where did writing come from for you? How did it all start? Well, it started a long time ago when I was eight. Um, I had I was dyslexic. Uh, it took me ages to learn to read, and when I finally did and could read a book, I was enchanted. And from then on, um, I not only began reading, but I began writing as well because I thought it was so miraculous um, that I could string words together. Hmm. So at what point did you feel like you had confidence enough to let people see what you were writing? Were you able to just put it out right away or did it take a while? You know, I had confidence right away, which unfortunately I think was misplaced since um, when you're eight years old, it's not the greatest writing. But my mother was encouraging. She was always encouraging. My dad always said, oh, I hope you get a real job someday. Because I started talking early on about being a writer, I could go to the library, and I knew someone had written all those books. So I thought, why not me? Um, I started putting them together with little pictures and stapling them from the get-go. However, once I was about 20 in college, I suppose, and was reading more great literature, I suddenly had a few qualms, I thought, Hmm, maybe my mother was wrong. (laughs) (laughs) So I think that it took me maybe 10 years to really um, work hard at writing. I did a lot of things. I did journalism. I did book reviews. I did criticism. um, And I did many drafts of short stories. And finally, when I was in my later 20s, I I thought, now finally, I think I'm really getting the hang of this. (laughs) Yeah. Well, you know, I was just had a review on myself saying I wrote like an eight-year-old, so I'm 59, so you're so you're ahead of me. Criticism. Well, you know, but what do you what do you think of criticism? You know, because because nowadays it's not as it used to be when you wrote books and you did things, uh, people you'd get reviews, but it wasn't the same. Like now, it's there's so much easy access, and you can get hundreds of reviews that are just by who knows who, and they say the, the, the meanest things, a lot of them. How, how do you, what's your take on the, on the way the world is now and the way we, we get, um, you know, I guess, scrutinized? Well, I guess I have mixed feelings. Um, I sometimes look at what people write on Goodreads about my books, and um, I'm often really amazed at how thoughtful they are, actually. I think a few people do say something mean, um, But for the most part, actually, people try and engage. Um, You know, the worst that people say is, she's writing about her life, and I don't care about her life. Uh, (laughs) That's a little bit hard to take. Um, But otherwise, I'm surprised that people also write some heartfelt feelings. Um, Like, um, I didn't know about this subject. I'm so glad to know about it. She's one of my favorite writers. You know, that's really nice. And I think because... Reviews in newspapers have really diminished. It used to be, I can remember, that there would be a handful of newspaper reviews you could hope for, maybe count on a few. But a lot of newspapers don't have book review sections anymore. So I think things have migrated to individuals who post online, um, who blog, who... um, you know, get their views out in, in different ways. There's not a lot of, there's not as much as informed criticism, I would say, but there's a lot more of criticism. Yeah, yeah. Do you like the way the publishing world's gone? You know, the way the, the you know, self-publishing and, and Amazon has such a big impact on things? 
Well, what are you going to do? It just goes on whether you like it or not. And I mm-hmm. suppose, again, it's it's been democratized a bit. Um, and writers who would have put that manuscript in the desk drawer um, publish it instead and do get readers. Um, so I like that aspect of it. It's become much more consolidated um, with the big publishers. But on the other hand, there are always indies popping up, too, who turn out to be successful in their field. So it's I, I don't know if I could make a definitive statement, let's say. It's always changing. Yeah, yeah. Well, so now you're writing. Uh, what is What do you consider yourself? What kind of writer would you call yourself if someone asked? Now, at this point, I don't know anymore because um, when I was younger, I was mostly writing what I would call feminist fiction and genre work, mysteries. Um, And then when I was in my 40s, I started really being interested in nonfiction. So I've written a number of books of nonfiction, of memoir, of travel and biography, even uh, cultural history especially in terms of Scandinavian studies. And I published more with university presses. But um, I also uh, never forgot about some of the mysteries that I'd done and always thought that I would get back to them, which is why I sort of decided to write another mystery and, and maybe more with my character, Cassandra Riley, who's a freelance uh, translator. Hmm. So when you write a mystery, what, what's the key or the most important element in the book itself for you? I think for me as a reader and as a writer, I'm most interested in the detective. Um, That's always been the figure that transfixed me, the person who has the right to ask questions and to move through the crime scene and to burrow into people's lives and and wonder where they were on the night of August 3rd. you know, some of the great eccentric detectives um, in literature have been fictional characters, whether that was Sherlock Holmes or uh, Miss Marple um, and lots of modern detectives as well. So I think that's what I think about is my detective. Who is she um, and, and why is she asking these questions? So your detective in, in, your, in your new book, the, the Not the Real Jupiter, um, Cassandra Riley. Who is Cassandra, um, and how did you how did you create her? Cassandra is uh, a freelance translator, and she's an American, but she's an expat. She's based in London, but she's traveled quite a bit. She's a translator mainly of Spanish, and at this point, she's uh, late sixties, early seventies. I think I say she's hovering around seventy. When I first created her, she was more in her 40s. Um, And I think I first invented her. I was asked to write a short story for a collection that came out in England when I was living there. And it was called Reader, I Murdered Him. And it was a collection of women's short fiction. And um, she popped into my mind at that point. She was very playful. Um, lots of jokes about language. Um, I think I was interested because I'm a translator myself. I've translated from the Scandinavian languages, mostly from Norwegian, but also from Danish and Swedish. 
And I was really interested in sort of the idea of a translator sleuth. I, I didn't know of any others. And I thought there's some connection between translation and parsing the meaning of words and detecting sleuthing and parsing the meaning of uh, also words from suspects, but also situations and clues. How, how much of yourself do you actually put into Cassandra? How much of you comes out? Well, um, I'm older now, too, so there's that connection we have. Um, I'm much more rooted than she is in that I've been with my partner for quite a while, and I live in um, the United States in Pacific Northwest, and I have a garden. On the other hand, I have traveled a lot, and I have a strong connection with London, lived there off and on, had a lover, and uh, had friends there and have spent a lot of time there. So even though I made the decision not to have uh, a life in London or in England um, or in Europe for that matter, I, part of me, I suppose, always wonders what would that would have been like. And I think Cassandra is uh, someone who's continued living on and off in, in North of London. And it gives me a sense of sort of joy and freedom to um, connect with her in that way. I have a question sort of circling back to um, your, you mentioned that you're dyslexic and, and, and um, I'm curious because I teach um, in, in my, in the real life, in my real, real world, um, <laughs> I teach uh, students with learning differences, including dyslexia. And I have some dyslexia myself and I've known a lot of mystery writers with dyslexia. Do you think there's something about, um, the that that sort of you know there's a connection between like mystery writing and dyslexia I guess is what I'm asking it's really I just I'm curious if you ever thought of that no I haven't and actually that's actually really interesting I didn't know that I had dyslexia as a child and it was a somewhat mild form of it I suppose um I couldn't uh seem to read in a straight line the letters got mixed up. And I still have that problem of transposing letters. Like museum, I invariably mix the U and the E. Um, but I think that I figured out some way, which I think a number of dyslexic people do, to kind of overcome that by actually seeing the larger paragraph in some ways and kind of memorizing it a little bit as I read so that I saw the larger picture rather than the individual sentences. And because it's a learning disability, as well as a little bit of a brain twist and turn, I think you can sort of train yourself. Um, I mean, I used to hate word games. I, I just felt like oh, I'm always so bad at them. Scrabble, crosswords, all of that. I just loathed it. But my wife, loves crosswords and she got me doing crosswords and I sort of realized once again I could kind of train myself to do try and see the words in a line so what I'm thinking um, is that there's something about thinking through a mystery with many clues you have to see the overall picture um, and get flashes of what might have happened. So you're looking at the big picture, but on the other hand, you're, you've trained yourself to also kind of go more slowly and sort of arrange things in a logical way so it makes sense. So I don't know if that's an answer, but 
No, I mean, that's, I think that's, that's a great, uh, great thought. I, I've been thinking about it a lot because I'm also a mystery writer. And I just think that there's something about the way our minds work and what, how you're describing your dyslexia. It sounds very similar to my own. And, um, and then, you know, of course, I'm also thinking about how to support kids and realizing that, you know, you, they often hate writing. I'm like, okay, how can you embrace writing? And I keep on thinking about all these mystery writers that I know. I'm like, it's actually could be a skill for writing that you have. <laughs> yeah. I think now that I'm older, I see it uh, now that I can name it. Um, I see it as um, a boon in my life. And I think that it, I mean, it always puzzled me because I thought, how is it possible it took me so long to learn to read? And I was always in the slow reading group, and I felt very embarrassed and shamed about that. Um, how is it that I became a translator? How is it that I became an editor and a writer? How was I able to do that? And it's sort of a mystery, but there's some way, because you're working at it all the time, um, it starts to make sense. You you develop some abilities that you didn't think that you had. And I would think that's true for kids, too. I, I do think um, there are probably some ways that as a dyslexic, you have to be inventive and you have to be persistent. And those can also be really helpful as a writer. Absolutely. Are you prepared? Legacy Food Storage. The best way to protect your family is by being prepared. Go now to LegacyFoodStorage.com. Use coupon code HOM15 now for 15% off. Quick, go! Welcome aboard Pizza Hut, where our legendary pan and stuffed crust pizzas will fly you to a world of flavors. Taste an all-American pizza sauce, juicy pepperoni, and farm-fresh mozzarella to discover America's mega pepperoni. Or explore the creamy pesto sauce, chicken and mushrooms, and the French creamy chicken mushroom. Fly far above the rest in taste and variety with five new pizzas. And thank you for flying Pizza Hut. You're listening to the House of Mystery radio show. History, crime, conspiracy, and paranormal mysteries.
Yeah, I wonder if it's just the process of, of learning, of thinking, um, working through it. Because I, I, I know being on the spectrum, I had a lot of communication problems and, and with writing and radio. And I do it now, but it still takes a lot of work. Mm-hmm. Um, but I wonder if you work your way, you build yourself up and be, become at that level where you can perform. I think we must. Um, I think we must have it in us to think I can make this work for me in some ways. Um, And I think that um, it also, it gives you an understanding of how your mind works as well as others. And I think that any disability um, has the potential to increase some compassion um, and understanding for other struggles that other people have. How do you think that changes or how do you think that affects your actual writing, the the story, like when, you know, not the real Jupiter. So when someone reads it, are are they going to pick up some sort of difference in the way you write because of it? I wouldn't think so, actually. Um, I mean, I, I don't know if people think, oh, this plot is rubbish or this plot is great um, or I like the jokes about language in it. Um, I think I discovered early on that I liked writing in images, um, that I saw things in images and I saw things in metaphor and simile and that um, it's possible that, you know, people could um, think, oh, that's a feature of her writing that is very visual in some ways. I don't know. I I haven't asked anyone recently. Hmm. It's probably better anyway. You'll get all these negative comments. (laughs) (laughs) I'm still stuck on that. I'm still stuck on that because someone actually wrote a review on one of the books that said that, and they complained, actually their text was complaining about losing their luggage at the airport. And I know it makes no sense to me and how it, how it even how did it even get posted and why can it stay up there when it has nothing to do with the reading I mean because they had one of my books does not mean the airport lost its luggage I, you know I just you know I I'm still really it's really bothering me so <laughs> and it shouldn't but you know uh, that's kind of what we deal with isn't it so Sometimes you can turn those things around and put them in your books um, just as a joke. Um, <laughs> so you get your revenge somehow. Yeah. I've always yeah. thought we should have a reading where we everyone went and read their worst, like, uh, Goodreads review as a, sort of, a, re, a way of reclaiming. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's, it can be devastating sometimes, you know. I just, yeah. I just can't take them seriously. Like, anyone who's just all really just out to be a jerk, um, it, just, it, it, it loses all effect. I just, I don't, you know what I mean? It just doesn't, yeah. if, if that, someone took me apart in a real sort of sharp, critical fashion, now that, that would hurt but i'd probably learn something but it would hurt um where someone's just being a jerk i'm like well there's jerks out there i'm frankly no surprise about that (laughs) right right i think it's all it's all about the person writing too like when they when when you when you put together a story and you put it out there um it's it's an overall project that you put in you put yourself into someone is going to be mean and say something that's just 
stupid even. Um, it, there has to be something that they're going through in order to do that. Like they're, they're letting steam out on you for some reason. And uh, that, I mean, maybe, maybe that's just my own thought, but I, I sort of think that usually it's someone's dealing with their own issues. Now, in your book, um, what, what's the most important thing that you want people to get out of it when they read one of your books? Well, uh, since we're talking about mysteries, um, I think I would mostly like them to um, enjoy themselves. Um, and I think that um, many people have told me that they liked Cassandra. Um, she's a bit quirky, um, but they do find her generally good humored. And I think one of the interesting things for me that I um I'm curious what readers will think of is that Cassandra is older now, and that was my intention. You know, I hadn't published a Cassandra Riley novel for 20 years um, because I've been off in Scandinavia and writing a lot about uh, the indigenous Sami and Scandinavia and the Sami and um, all kinds of interesting things. But I um, hadn't published a book in quite a while, and so... Um, when I was writing this mystery, I thought, I'm just going to let her age. And um, lots of mystery. If you thought the only way to get a more defined jawline with natural looking results was through surgery, think again. Juvederm Volux XC is a non-surgical injectable gel filler that improves moderate to severe loss of jawline definition and can help you achieve natural looking results with little downtime. Even better, this improved definition lasts up to one year with optimal treatment. No maintenance required. Improve jawline definition for a smooth sculpted look with Juvederm Volux XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. If you're looking for plump lips that last, you need to know about Juvederm Lip Fillers. With Juvederm Volbella XC and Juvederm Ultra XC, your lip look, whether it's subtle or bold, can last up to one full year with optimal treatment and no additional maintenance. Find a licensed specialist and see if it's right for you at Juvederm.com today. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Add fullness to lips in adults over 21 with Juvederm Volbella XC or Juvederm Ultra XC. Do not use if you have severe allergies or a history of severe allergic reactions, or if you you're allergic to lidocaine or the proteins used in Juvederm. Tell your doctor if you have a history of scarring or taking medicines that decrease the body's immune response or that can prolong bleeding. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. As with all fillers, there's a rare risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. For full, important safety information, visit Juvederm.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. 
In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Wow. Nice. Yeah. What you're hearing are the sounds of people everywhere putting on Bomba socks, underwear, and T-shirts made from absurdly soft materials that feel like plush clouds. Yeah, that plush. And the best part? For every item you purchase, Bombas donates another to someone facing homelessness. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST. Code ACAST. Writers keep their detectives kind of around the same age, you know, 30s, 40s, so they can do all the physical things that detectives need to do. They can jump out of windows, they can run down the street, they can climb up a ladder and jump off the roof. And um, you have to think, you know, after all these years, how can Sir Paretsky's detective still do this? Wouldn't she be around 80 by now? (laughs) Um, But they live in a kind of more nebulous reign. You know, we sort of realm and we sort of accept that um but i thought i want to um see what a lesbian who's in her late 60s 70s who's financially insecure she's not retired um things that worked when she was in her 20s and 30s even 40s um footloose lots of girlfriends traveling around the world um, it's more of a challenge when you get to be in your 60s. So I wanted that sense of age to kind of enter. At the same time, our knowledge of aging and the experience of aging is really changing a lot. So there was no reason why I should have an elderly spinster like Miss Marple, who was just sitting around and knitting and was asexual and um just sort of said, oh, my goodness, um, well, maybe he killed him. No, I need to think about this a little bit more. I thought, I love that idea of the spinster detective, but why not subvert that a lot? And I've, I've, subvert, I've subverted that in other books um, with some of my plots and my characters, but I thought, I think I'll do that now. I think that makes sense to me to sort of try and change that image of the elderly spinster and make her a woman who is able to move, able to travel, um, still engaged um, in the world, and um, still romantically inclined. That was really fun for me. So I would love readers to carry that away with them, that sense of, oh, my goodness, um, oh, my God, here's a, a woman who's my age or 30 years older. She can still do this. Do you find it difficult to sequel a, a character like that? So someone that you wrote about years ago and then you bring them back to remember all of the uniqueness about that person so that you don't make a mistake or forget something or have to change something? No, I had to look a couple things up um, from earlier books. Um that told the story, but she already had a kind of discontinuous personality because she's lived in many places and she's done many things. And she's sort of anchored by her friendship with a a bassoonist uh, named Nikki Gibbons, who lives in London, who's now retired. But um, I found it really interesting instead of 
confusing to carry on with her and have her remember things that happened as well as muse on what it's like getting older. She's been with me all this time. She actually feels like a friend of mine. Um, so even though it had been many years since I wrote about her, I felt that it wasn't hard at all to get back into her, her voice and her state of mind. Mm. That's interesting. You know, um, where where do your characters come from for you? Like, where do, how, how is it that you develop a character? Is it someone you see in a coffee shop, or is it j- just out of the blue, or in a dream? Do you hear voices? Like, what's um, where? What 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 goes on for you? I think characters come in a variety of ways. They're very rarely based on um, people I know, but they're similar to people I know or have known. And um, because in my younger years, I was really active in the women in print movement. I had a publishing company. I went to lots of, lots of conferences. I traveled a lot and was on panels. Um, I knew bookstore owners. I knew publishers and writers. And I think those are many characters in my books, and I find it easy to conjure them up. Um, because there are certain kinds of um, writers, editors, publishers who I've known all my life. So I know what their concerns are. I know their struggles financially. I know the kinds of secrets they try and keep. Um, So I think that I always have tried to have a somewhat multicultural cast of characters in the mysteries. Um, And... Um, in this book, Not the Real Jupiter, because Cassandra is a Spanish language translator, there are several Latina women writers um, who appear, or one is a publisher and a writer, and another is uh, another two are writers. So, um, you know, I, I think about Latina women writers I've known, but I don't try and um, base it exactly on anyone, just in general. Now, do you have a, a favorite, um, you know, or favorites uh, influences on your writing? Um, other other writers, other you know, LGBTQ writers. Um, where do you sort of gain your inspiration? Well, I think I read really widely, and I have certainly. Um, learned from many women writers over the years, as well as um, male mystery writers. Um, I Some of the mystery writers I like best were from the golden age. I always liked Nayo Marsh, but I love Sarah Codwell. She's not very well known, and she only wrote a handful of mysteries. But she was a British writer who I thought was very witty and wonderful. I did... Um, uh, I... I feel like I was very influenced when I was starting out by other women mystery writers. And I would say Amanda Cross was one who had Mm -hmm. a literary character, Kate Delafield, I think. No. Sure. Um, uh, Actually, I think that was Catherine Forrest who had Kate Delafield. Yeah, that's right. That's right. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. (laughs) But uh, Amanda Cross had another Kate, a counselor maybe, something like that. At any rate, you know, people like Sarah Paretsky, my work was really different. You know, I never was into the hard-boiled style, but mm-hmm. I I did read Sarah Paretsky, loved her character. Um, 
And I was emboldened by many feminist writers of mysteries in the 80s, I think, to, um, to want to write more mysteries, to see this as a very viable genre. Um, so in that sense, I don't always think it was the writing who, that influenced me, but more just their choice of genre that was really inspiring. Absolutely. Amanda Cross, she writes the, they're kind of set in an academic setting, right? Am I, am I getting that? Yes, yeah. right. Yeah, that's what I thought. Mm -hmm. I think they, and that was the pen name of, uh, uh, it was a pen name of someone who was also a uh, English teacher, um, um, no, what was her name? Oh, it'll probably come to me. Um, yeah. But she wrote books on feminist literature. She taught at Columbia. Um, she kind of kept the two separate for quite a while until she mm -hmm. finally came out as Amanda Cross. And you think her, I mean, you write in so many different uh, sort of genres, but, you know, I, typically from the outside looking in, you have like the more popular, um, you know, crime genre. And then you have when nonfiction can be seen as more literary, you know, I, where do you come from? What's your opinion on that? Do you think there's a real divide or do you think this is sort of an artificial thing we've constructed, um, slotting mystery and sort of purely popular, you know, uh, or kind of dismissing it sometimes that way? Yeah, in my case, I think that um, I didn't feel fully challenged uh, by mystery writing. And I didn't really want a mystery career, even though I totally love mysteries. I love to watch them, to read them, and I loved writing them. But I didn't feel like I really fit into that genre. I couldn't produce them fast enough, and mm -hmm. I wanted to write other things. And I think I wanted to write a memoir. Uh, I wanted to write about my childhood. I knew that I wanted to travel and write in my own voice about my travels. And once I had gone up to the north of Scandinavia, I thought there's really so much to say about um, the north and Scandinavia. And I got pulled into that. And I was not an academic, but I started doing more academic research. So it got further and further away from the genre of mystery writing. But I will say I have utmost respect for mystery authors. And I think that I feel like I had so much support and leeway to write new kinds of characters. When I first started writing the mysteries, I had a different character, Pam Nielsen, who with her twin sister, Penny, had a printing shop in Seattle. And they took place in the kind of leftist uh, collective era of Seattle in the, in the late 70s and 80s. And I had so much fun with that. Um, but I felt like I was also able to talk about politics and to bring in a wide cast of characters and to both write seriously about death and violence against women, uh, as well as a lighter side. And I don't think you can always do that in traditional literary fiction. I think um, genre is sometimes where you're allowed to experiment. And at the same time, there's so many serious writers working in genre. So I think that's really important not to ghettoize it or, or segregate it too much from literature. Um, yeah. Right, right. Yeah. And I, 
I do um, uh, think that it's, it's true that it can be confining one way or another. It can be confining. And it's sort of refreshing to hear you say <laughs> that you, you, you like the freedom. If you wanted to pivot to something nonfiction, you know, um, I certainly feel some of those feelings, particularly the producing a book a year, which is out of the question for me. <laughs> yeah, um, right. It's tough. It's tough to do that. You got to have the time and the, honestly, the discipline um, for me. I'm speaking for me. Yeah. And the creative mind doesn't always work like that. Um, That's true. I do think people struggle to fulfill career requirements because, you know, creativity is something different. And mm-hmm. I suppose it all has to do with how do you think of your writing? You know, is it only a career? Is it um, just something that you're, you know, a path that you have to follow in order to make a living or to satisfy your publishers and readers? Or is writing some kind of journey for you? I mean, not in any mystical sense, but, you know, I, th- I do think of creativity as sort of an adventure, and if you can't follow where your mind takes you and into the different projects that you're really passionate about, then what's the point of it? Why would you want to keep writing the same book over and over again? Yeah, I, I agree. Do you, do you find that you, like when you talk about, uh, you know, she's London-based and you talk about uh, Scandinavian stuff, do you write your location as a character as well? I have, definitely. Um, You know, London was a very important time in my life, and I've I've been there many times. And whenever I go there, I sort of feel like I slip back into that life of North London, Islington, Stoke Newington, Caledonian Road. Um, And so that's very much a part of the books. Um, But I've also spent a lot of time in Spain and lived in Barcelona, and in Gaudi Afternoon, that book was definitely, Barcelona was a big character in, in, in that, and the same in Venice, and um, to write my book about Cassandra that was in Romania and Hungary, I went there and went to Romania shortly after it became non-Soviet, and was kind of enchanted by that whole world too. So that was a big part of, uh, I think place has always been a huge part of my writing, but it's, it's especially huge in terms of the Cassandra books. It's a little bit different with a new one, which is set in Oregon. It starts in Montevideo, Uruguay, but it sort of relocates to the Bay area and then to the coast of Oregon. And again, that became a, almost a character in the book. Hmm. What would you give for advice for a person that's a brand new writer right now? Oh, well, you know, there's probably nothing that they don't know. There's so many writing books available and there's so much advice. But again, you have to find your own way through all of this. Um, So I think that, first of all, you have to learn to sit in one place Um, People don't think about that when they think about writers, that it it is a little bit solitary and you do have to train yourself um, to sit somewhere usually for three or four hours every day if you can, um, if you're going to produce books anyway. Um, I also think that it's important to find a group of people that you can share your writing with. Um, I think that makes all the difference because otherwise you're going to probably feel way too lonely 
Um, and there are all kinds of groups available, you know, through the library, through um, different organizations online. So I'd seek out like-minded people. Those are probably the two most important things. Hmm. So um, now, do you have a website or do you have a place that you like people to come and find out more about you? I have two websites. Um, uh, one is my last name, barbarashuholm.com. And that has more about um, the translations and nonfiction books that I've done. And then I have a newish site called barbarawilsonmysteries.com. And uh, that's all about my mysteries. So what's next? I'm working on another Cassandra book uh, that's set in Belgium and London and having lots of fun with that. And I have a big book coming out from the University of Minnesota Press next year that is on museums um, and the collection of Sami objects over 400 years and what happened to them, how they ended up in museums. So I'm kind of excited about both of those projects. I was going to say, yeah, you, you do lots of traveling, but I guess with COVID, uh, that's kind of cut down, isn't it? Yeah, I have nowhere that I've been. My <laughs> wife and I are planning to drive to Montana this summer and are really looking forward to that. A little bit nervous. We're going to Glacier National Park. It's oh, beautiful. Yeah. Yeah, she's a wildlife biologist for the Forest mm-hmm. Service. So um, she's a fun person to travel with when we're going outdoors. Yeah. Did you find, like, so when you're writing, um, do you find that things like um, COVID and, you know, Trump, all, all the weird stuff in the last years, does, does that have an influence? Do you think it seeps into your writing? Yeah, I. but it's hard to know how to get that in. I haven't dealt with the fact that, COVID would have severely curtailed Cassandra's travels. Um, When I started writing my book, um, Not the Real Jupiter, COVID hadn't happened, but Trump was very much in power. And I have Cassandra kind of returning to the States after some time away and driving through the Oregon uh, landscape and seeing some signs. But I I didn't want to go too far down that road, because I didn't know how to. Um, I think for a lot of writers, it's just been almost too much to live through, much less to process um, and reproduce in our writing. And I felt that way about Trump. You know, it was like this gigantic dark cloud in the sky that blotted out the sun for four years. So I felt hugely affected by it, but I, it, it could not find its way into my writing very easily. And I'm not sure how to deal with COVID either in terms of Cassandra. I mean, she would have been stuck in London, I'm presuming. Um, It would be much too complicated to have her stuck someplace else in the world, I suppose. Um, But, yeah, it's going to change everything about travel. Um, Mm. Well, and not only that, even even the years with Trump and just all the, the weirdness that was going on and the stress, do, do, do you think that makes you, even without including that, does that make you write a little darker? In some ways, um, possibly. Um, it's hard to be always optimistic um, when you know what people are capable of and you know what the United States 
history is and the constant threat now of, you know, return to authoritarianism. Um, I, you know, I'm kind of an optimistic, cheerful person, and I certainly have been on the left for a long time. And so I believe in change and I have seen change throughout my long life. But um, I don't know where things are going. You know, I I have invested a, quite a lot of energy in writing about the indigenous people of the far north. And I think that's partly because I do see so much change and progress in that area. And I've been an ally in some ways. And I think part of the reason I'm an ally is that I do come from a racist though a very interesting multicultural country. Um, I find it actually quite difficult in my writing to know how to write about the United States directly. I can only seem to write about it slant somehow. And I think that's often been true. Well, there's so many, so many elements, you know? Yeah. Um, How how do you, you, yeah. And how can you define it? You know, that's, it's, it's hard. Um, Do you worry about the political correctness or about writing a certain subject that you get cast in a certain light? No, not anymore. I mean, one of the pleasures of getting older is who cares? Um, (laughs) (laughs) But um, I certainly got a lot of criticism when I was younger because of some of the things that I wrote about. And um, I, um, you know, again, I'm not really an editorialist. So what I liked about writing mysteries in the 1980s, and one of them sort of took on the subject of lesbian sadomasochism, and I had this sort of even-handed approach in a way um, with, you know, characters who espoused one thing, characters who did another, hypocrisy. Um, it was really great fun to try and bring all those voices into concert. And I think a number of readers loved that because it was such a confusing issue and um, people didn't know what they thought about a lot of these aspects. Um, was it derogatory towards women? Was it positive for women? Um, so there were lots of fighting about it. And I captured some of that in the book. So, of course, I got some flack for even attempting this. Um, and people always wanted to know what I personally thought. But maybe because I'm kind of a calm person or a Libra, I'm not sure. It was sort of like, well, I don't know. I hear what they're saying, but I don't do that myself. But that's interesting. Um, I didn't want to be wishy-washy. I wanted to engage, but I wanted to allow many voices to be heard. And um, so I'm not afraid of being politically incorrect. Um, and certainly I'm not afraid of it now. I, I, it matters very little to me. Well, they'll be they'll be attacking you on Twitter. <laughs> yes, but I hardly ever look at Twitter, so I don't know. <laughs> yeah, kind of. I guess that is true. As, as you get older, those things mean so much less, you know. Yeah. Um, yeah, it's a good thing about getting older. I think getting older is actually completely fascinating. Well, it is, but I find it very strange. Um, because I don't feel in the mind older, if that makes sense. Yeah. You know, the body just doesn't. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, those things are true. You know. And I think that's why it's so fascinating, is just, 
you're you're aware that things are starting to crumble a bit, um, uh, or maybe a lot. I don't know, <laughs> but um, the mind ranges freely um, all over. You know, from your childhood through your middle years. I feel I feel it's a very reflective time, but it's also fun and active somehow too. Um, it's very different from being middle aged. Mm-hmm. Mm. Well, there we go. Uh, you you hear it all. <laughs> well, it's certainly an interesting conversation, and we appreciate you being here. Um, the book we're featuring is featuring is not the real Jupiter. It's a Cassandra Riley mystery, and our guest has been the author Barbara Wilson. Thank you for being here. Thank you, Alan. Thank you, John. Thank you, Barbara. To find out more about our show, guests, or to listen to past shows from our archive, please go to www.houseofmysteryradio.com. The mission has been completed. The end! By George, he's got it! It is the end! I'll see you. If you're lying to me, I'll be back. This has been a production of Something Weird Media. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50 luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. You've been listening to the House of Mystery radio show. To find out more about our guests, hosts, or shows, go to www.houseofmystery.com. Show's over for now. Was it as good for you as it was for me? Well, good night. This has been a production of Something Weird Media. I'll be back.